It's maybe a little longer since we started late, but I had some things on my mind. I felt like the Lord impressed me with uh, some really clear thoughts about Jesus as our foundation and as our center and as our Lord as we recalibrate. So if you could turn to John chapter 13, that's the passage I'm going to start with. And I'm also going to refer to Philippians chapter 2. So there's a lot of smartphones out there. You'll just, you won't have, you know, you don't have to keep a bookmark. But those of you with paper Bibles, which look a little odd now, I'm sure it's just kidding. Um, They don't. But anyway, you can keep a bookmark if you want. We're going to Philippians 2 next. So I'm sorry, Josh. I'm going to move this for now. Yeah, I was going to move it for you. So you can grab it. So we're recalibrating. The Lord keeps putting that on my heart. I looked the word up, recalibrate, and it means to calibrate again. I just am going to let that truth bomb just explode. Minds blown. So that's probably enough to say today. Not really. Well, anyway, I had to go look up calibrate then. I shared this with a couple of guys the other day, so sorry for the repeat. But to calibrate or to recalibrate is to align with the standard again, to realign with the original standard. And I feel like the Lord is actually in our midst to help us as our friend to do that, but he's also evaluating us, taking us seriously regarding the the vision that we have and the, the style, the DNA that we've articulated and prayed about and and agreed to, he's saying, yeah, let's go for it. I'm, I'm taking you up on that. So that's encouraging me because he's going to help us, but it's also something I feel he's holding us accountable to. So that's all part of the recalibration season. It's not just lining back up, but it's recognizing the Lord is now expecting that of us. So for me, that's been very sobering and encouraging at the same time, and I wanted to share that with you. Um, also, I have written out a simple outline of the different things that I believe, or, or let's say the different habits or expressions that I believe potentially express our work, everything from internal meetings to external mission that um, I've shared before with a couple of the guys, and, and Mike and Joshua Lamica in particular said I should share those with you know, everyone. So I'm not going to verbalize them today, but I'm going to send you that outline and maybe we can talk about it uh, in other meetings. Um, My time's a little bit limited today. I just want to let you know that that's coming. I intended to at least read through the outline quickly today, just the different things that are kind of the mechanics of what I see a community like ours doing. You know, of course, we already know some of it, but uh, this was further things that uh, we have as potential that I wanted to share with you. But I'll send the outline instead, and we could talk about it another day. I just want to let you know. That's all part of the recalibrating. So we see the things even practically and actively that we're going for. But for our purposes this morning, more importantly, the Lord has really put on my heart how Jesus Himself is our foundation and how He Himself is the standard by which we 
calibrate and recalibrate. It, he, it's, we don't just have a, a vision that can be articulated in an outline. You know, I, I try to make it in, in something like that as practical as I can. And so that's all part of the implementation. It's important. But ultimately, we want to do what we do because we've seen Jesus. And we know Him and we know what He's like. And therefore, that revelation compels us to live a certain way. We can't just do what we want. Like Paul says in Galatians 5, you know, when the Spirit is warring against the flesh, we should live by the Spirit if we have life by the Spirit, which means partly, it's not everything that he's saying, but part of what he's saying is, that means you can't do as you please. Which means you can't just live the way you want. We're in covenant with God, we should be led by the Spirit, and the Spirit glorifies Jesus, and Jesus himself, his nature... And the description of his life, death, and resurrection and ascension also calls us to a certain way of living. Not just devotional contemplation, but a way of life is implied by Jesus. And if we knew him, which we do, so let's say as we know him better, we should constantly be recalibrating regarding the way we live together as family on mission. So the burden of what I'm trying to articulate today is that God is calling us to a fresh revelation of the majesty of Jesus. And that's what I want to share a little bit about. Um, Like I said, the reason for this is because, well, he's Jesus and he's worthy, but he's also our life. As we heard one of the passages of scripture today, Um, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. So he is a way of life for us. I know this to be true because just of the content of the New Testament. You know, the four Gospels are the headwaters of everything we read after that. Jesus presented to us in his you know, pre-birth history, and then his birth and his life and his teachings and his death and his resurrection and his ascension are all laid before us before we do anything else with Acts and the Gospels, uh, the Epistles, excuse me. So the content of Jesus' life should be fueling our community. I know this because then when we do get to the book of Acts, the Apostles are preaching Christ Jesus. And the Spirit is being poured out as people see the Lord in Revelation through this preaching. And then they respond in faith and life completely changes for them. I know this because in the epistles, whenever there's a problem, like a false teaching or division in the community or just a need for strong encouragement, uh, the normal mode, the consistent mode of Paul and the others is to re-proclaim the gospel before adjustments are called on to be made. So it's a consistent pattern that whenever there's something to address in the churches, they're not just exhorted. Well, here is our vision. Here's what we agreed to. Here's the way life should be lived together in love. It wasn't abstract. It was always started with an unveiling of Jesus himself and then a call to the practical implications of simply knowing him. In particular, in Ephesians, which we're not turning to, but just, it's a good example. In Ephesians 1, before Paul again unveils Jesus, 
as the resurrected and ascended one. He prays that the churches that are receiving this message in Asia Minor, um, to the Ephesians, right? But it's really to all the churches in Asia Minor that particular letter was. He's praying that they would, ha- they would receive again the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So what Paul's praying for is that by the spirit of revelation that you would really see Jesus for what he is as this Lord who's been raised on high. And we're going to unpack that in a minute. But that that spirit of revelation that is real to your heart, that's preceded by the spirit of wisdom, who will unpack that revelation practically in your life. So that it's something that's this vision of Jesus, Paul's praying, seizes our hearts and then gets unfolded into practical living. Which I'm... Uh, claiming that the, what we're going for as New Testament church is defined by the person of Jesus himself. That if we really saw him in his majesty, it would call us to a certain way of doing church and mission. It's not just an abstract vision. It's we do what we do because of who Jesus is. I was writing a list just yesterday. and like, well, what is it? about Jesus that implies community on mission. Well, it's everything about Jesus. It's even the way he conducted his life. He was always surrounding himself with people, always connecting with people, training people, revealing the Father relationally to people. So even though he wouldn't, he wouldn't entrust himself to them, he didn't live under their opinions, he still always had to be surrounded by people, always had to be connected. He's an extremely relational person. Even saying it's to your advantage I go away so that you get the spirit. You're going to do greater things than we, than, than I have. So, you know, he always was entrusting himself in that sense. Entrusting, I should say, entrusting, uh, you know, the treasures of the kingdom to others so that he could even be physically absent and wants them to carry on. Also, he himself comes from the Trinity. He is in Trinity and we've been invited into that family as his people, you know, just from forever, he was never lonely. He was always in relationship. It's just who he is that calls us into covenant community, even with one another, and then to bear the fruit of those relationships on mission. So with that, I wanted to read John 13, several verses beginning in the first. So, It was before the feast of the Passover. Jesus knows that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's such a precious thing that we're told here, and so important in terms of what we were just talking about. That Jesus was just in love with his disciples. That's what motivated his heart. These stories we read are not just sterile theology. Jesus loved his people deeply. And he was highly motivated to lay his life down because he loved them so much. I just heard the dog's paws. After you've heard it a certain amount of times, you could tell when he does his leap and lands. Certain sounds. So anyway, with this knowledge in mind and with this love in his heart, it says, during the supper... The devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. That's part of the scenario. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, 
and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So Jesus took up this activity of washing the feet of his disciples, which is not the social position that ought to be taken by the host and the master, and in this case, the Lord. It's the precise opposite of the activity that he should have been taking as the one who was the teacher over these students and the master of this mobile household. Um, So this was very shocking to the disciples. But what I want us to understand is John tells us the reason why Jesus took this posture is because he knew how great he was. It wasn't just the love in his heart. He knew he came from God. He wasn't just some rabbi. He came from God. He came from heaven. He was aware that he was fully divine. And he knew also where he was going. He was going back to the place of total exaltation. He knew he was fixing to rule the universe. Not only as fully God, but now as a human, restoring everything God created that was meant to be ruled by humans, he was going to restore all of that in this huge fell swoop. Not only would he be Lord in the ultimate sense of that term, but he would restore everything to God the way it was intended to be. So armed with this knowledge, he had the confidence to go to the lowest place that was available to him before his people. Even at the risk of being misunderstood and at the risk of being betrayed, making himself so vulnerable. That's very important for us to understand. That Jesus did not become a servant because he had a low view of himself. He became a servant because he had a high view of himself. And God's way is always to use greatness to serve others. That's the only thing we do with greatness, is serve others. It's never meant, greatness was never designed to lord it over people. We've perverted, I say we as humans, we've perverted. There shouldn't even be such a thing as the way that North Korea is ruled. There even should, There shouldn't even be such a thing as abusive church leaders or the shepherds that made the prophets weep in the Old Testament. My shepherds have used my people to gain advantage for themselves and to feed themselves instead of feed the flock. There shouldn't even be such a thing. The whole reason why God gives power and authority is to serve others. That's why Jesus, armed with such knowledge of his greatness had the confidence to serve other people, make himself vulnerable, and not explain himself away, you know, to protect his reputation, but rather he just he left himself vulnerable. You know, even the, the, the picture of the, the clothing, you know, taking off the outer garment that he had and clothing himself with the clothing of a household servant. He was making himself vulnerable and risking misunderstanding, even allowing himself to be betrayed, allowing the devil to come to some degree, in a sense, I guess, uh, to the dinner. Not as an invited guest, but that's just part of the process. That's part of, you know, being a servant in this world. 
So also we have here um, this picture of these these three levels of what Jesus brings to the table, so to speak. Bless her heart. This is why I'm on a clock right now. We're going until noon, baby. But we're thankful to have Adeline so healthy and with us, right? She was in the hospital at first. Anyway, praise God. Jesus sat as the host and Lord over these disciples. And simultaneous with that, he came beneath them as their servant. And simultaneous with that, he was simply among them, present as one of them. That's like the threefold presence of Jesus in our midst also. And they're not one or the other, they're always all three at the same time, even though he might express one or the other at any given moment. But this is the way we must conceive of the majesty of Jesus in our midst if we're going to be a community on mission. He is our Lord. He's the King. He's the Master. He gives us commands that we obey. That doesn't change when He washes our feet. He makes that clear in the, the comments after this. If I'm your Lord and Teacher, and you know, especially two chapters over, but still, if I'm your Lord and Teacher, then, and if I did this, you should do it. I'm an example. And also you should be obeying my commandments. He never apologizes for being the Lord. And we should experience him as the Lord. There should be a spirit of worship in our gatherings, in our private time, and in just our take on life. We don't belong to ourselves. We are servants of the Master. Amen? Amen. There should be that, 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 that sense of awe and majesty in our lives and in our worship. We should really feel the call to worship Jesus as King and Lord. And we want that sense of awe in our midst that the Lord and Creator of all things and now the Redeemer of God's universe and, of course, the human race is, is, is the one who presides over us. He's God and He's Lord. And yet at the same time, not only is He over us as Lord, but He's underneath us as the servants of our community. He's the one that heals us. He's the one that encourages us. He's the one that makes us feel love when we need to feel love or we need encouragement. He's the one that provides that word of wisdom. He's the one that gives that provision when we need it. He's just constantly working, as it were, from beneath us to serve us, to wash our feet continually. In fact, he says, don't resist that. He'll say in a minute to Peter, don't resist what I'm doing. If you resist my service of you, you have no part in me. You have to let me be this kind of king. Don't define kingdom your way. Define it my way. Kings, serve. Let me serve you. You have to receive my love. And then he goes, if you'll notice the pattern, he comes from the place of presiding, changes his clothing to that of a servant, comes beneath them and washes them, says, you have to let me do this. And then he goes back up, he reclothes himself, takes the seat of majesty again and says, now y'all do the same. It's a powerful picture. I believe Philippians 2, which the other passage you have bookmarked, is consciously reflecting John 13, this vision of Jesus coming from above, coming below as a servant, and then going back up to his majesty. In any case, we must have a vision of his majesty where he is the Lord, but he's also the servant who provides the great gifts to the church and heals us 
and enables us in everything he's called us to do. And then simultaneous with that, just like in this picture, he's at the table with us. He's the presence of the Lord right with us. So it's like Jesus is over us as Lord. He's beneath us as servant, which, by the way, that image can double as foundation. He is beneath us. There's only one foundation. And then he's in the midst of us as the great presence in the community who empowers us to conceive of him in the other two ways also. So we must also know Jesus as the center. I'd like the, the first song we sang today was about the greatness of Jesus. And then later we sang about Jesus being the center. And we should know him that way too. That he's the center. He, we, we, we are called to cultivate friendship with him. We are called to enjoy his presence in our midst. And just have direct fellowship. We're also to recognize him as one of the members of our community that seems to boil him down to something minimal, but because we know he's so much more than that, maybe we can say it. He's not just a member, but he is hes a member. He's one of us. You know, we are distinct from him. We're not pantheists or whatever, you know. It's God is not everything. God is God. He's specific. So if he's in our midst, that specific person is here. And we're allowed and even call to enjoy his presence and his friendship and his companionship. And when we experience his presence, he empowers us to obey him as Lord and to let him serve us as our servant, but also to uh, to repeat and to copy his example as the servant of the community. My prayer has been that these kinds of things I'm sharing right now um, and that we share with one another about Jesus that really gets in our spirit as a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That his presence really overshadows us and we start to feel on a deeper level. For lack of a better term, not just understand, but feel. But not feel in the superficial emotional sense, but in the deep gut convictional sense. He's in our midst as Lord and as the servant of servants, and that's what we're called to... That he's the one we're called to copy. He's rubbing off on us. This is the spirit of a community like this. We don't do what we do because we have a neat idea and we want to be contrasted with the conventional way. We do what we do because of Jesus. Because this is who He is. This is what He's like. These are His commands to us. This is His style. Whatever else you want to say about it, it's all about Him and because we're about him, we translate it into this kind of life. So in verse 6, he comes to Simon Peter to wash him, to wash his feet. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you don't realize now, but you'll understand later. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Again, he doesn't understand the ways of majesty. He's too culturally conditioned. Your status doesn't come down here. No, that's the whole point of my status, is to go down there. See, we we worship that Jesus, guys. He's not just, Lord, we've encountered your presence, you're so awesome. Really? Do, have you not read the text over and over and over and over and over and over and over again? My awesomeness goes beneath people and serves them, or you don't know my awesomeness. If you're not compelled to the same life, then you don't yet know me. 
I'm not just there to give you, you know, the, the, the sheer pleasure of my presence during a revival meeting. I'm there to transform you into someone like me who takes this awesome personhood that I've granted you and uses it to serve other people. That's why Paul smacks this same unveiled Christ right in front of the Philippians and says, now here's why you guys should get along. Because this is the spirit, the spirit of the Messiah, which is what he says, have this mind in you, which was also in Messiah Jesus. This is what you all should be eating and drinking and digesting into your system. That you're not here to serve yourself and push forth your own agenda, but that of others. Because that's what your master has done. And you're his body. You're the continuation of him into the world. So we need to remove Jesus from our shelf of devotional icon worship. And put him on the table and consume him as flesh and blood. Like he says, seven chapters earlier, a little bit graphic, but they're his words, not mine. You can take it up with him. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. I want to be digested into your system so that my life is replicated in you. Not to where I'm simply a devotional you know, image on your shelf. So Peter's wrestling with this. Never shall you wash my feet. He says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Well then, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed only needs to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. So, of course, he's referring to Judas there. The point is, his word has been cleansing them. He's trying to teach them. It's not just washing your feet physically. It's the whole idea of what I've been doing by the word of God. I've cleansed you, but you need to be continually cleansed because you're clean, but as you walk through life, you know, usually they didn't have nice stony paths like this and a nice deck. And, you know, they had open shoes and they would walk about and they'd always have to wash their feet when they come into someone's house. So Jesus says, you're all clean, you're all whole, but you will need to wash off when you come into someone's house, so to speak. You're always going to need a little, little bits of recalibrating, but you don't have to keep getting resaved. <laughs> so let me do that for you. I've bathed you fully, but I'm going to have to recalibrate you sometime. Oh, that's awesome. But he's washing our feet as we speak. That's what recalibration is. So when he had washed their feet, in verse 12, and taken his garments and reclined again, so he's back in the position of Lord, he says, don't you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. I am. If then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Because I gave you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So Philippians chapter 2. I know. That's very soothing, Cole. Thank you. church dog. By the way, sorry before when you ran about. So Philippians 2.1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete, says the Apostle Paul, 
by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now I'm going to read that again, and I want us to remember the terminology because it comes up again later. Okay, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, whatever your translation is, I'm sure it's something like this, right? So do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So there's a mindset, Paul is saying. If you thought this way, you'd behave this way. If you saw yourself as installed in a community to serve the others, then you would behave that way. And we wouldn't have the problem that he's responding to. But having given them this exhortation to have a certain mode of thinking about how everyone else is more important, which is an extraordinary call to think this way. But having given them this exhortation, he gives them the reason. Uh, well, one more verse in verse 4. Don't merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. Okay, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. See, the, the assumption is we're not just trying to be nice to one another. The assumption is we're Jesus people. We want to embody him. We, we're not just going to refer to him as if we're affiliates in his religion. We embody him. We do things the same way he did. If this is the way he exercised his lordship, then that's what we're called to do. So, in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which goes back to the, um, the regard one another is more important than yourselves. The terminology is similar. It was also in Christ Jesus. So, he had the same mindset. So you can predict what he's about to say. Even though he existed in such greatness, he saw himself as the one willing to give himself for others. Even though he knew he was greater than everyone, he had a mindset like, I'm going to go serve them as if they're greater than me. That's his mindset. That's what majesty does in God's kingdom. That's why you can see if, if we were imbibed with this, you know, eating it like, like bread and drinking it like wine or grape juice then we're digesting the same way of thinking. So it says, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So So again, it's interesting, um, this word, he didn't regard that equality something he had to grab onto. That's the same terminology where Paul says, regard one another as more important than you. So he's, he's purposely using the same term to say, we're just want to think the way Jesus thought. You know that verse where Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's like that's his little tag. So Paul's saying, look, my old man's dead, and now I'm alive. In fact, it's not just me. Hi, Cole. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Christ living in me, says Paul. <laughs> he got away. We could shut it. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't have to. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. Trying to capture him. It might help. <laughs> no, sorry, buddy. Um, ushering has a whole new meaning. <laughs> 
um, for Paul, you know, Christ in him meant so many of the things John G. Lake would talk about. You know, Christ is in me. I will, oh, sorry, lock the lily in. It's never, it's, it's a hard door to, Cole is so clever. He outwits us every time. How does he do that? Oh, you're snagged. Oh. Am I snagged at the door? No, no, it's it's him. He's snagged. Here, I got it. You kind of got to lift it a little bit. Oh, okay. Here, sorry. We'll give you some air, Cole. As long as you can't get out. Um... It wasn't Christ in him just to have dominion, but it's the Christ life of loving and giving himself up for others. That's the way Paul described him. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Christ in us means we have dominion over sin. We have dominion over sickness. We have dominion over disease. We have dominion over the devil. We have dominion to push the gospel into new places. Yes, it also means we're empowered to live the same life of love and giving ourselves up. For Paul, that was the most immediate reference of the Christ life. He loved me and gave himself up because that pattern is most contrary to our souls. But when Christ is in us, we have this power to live the Christ life that is loving and giving itself up. Man, that's powerful. Jesus is our center. Now we know what we're talking about. Jesus is our Lord, and Jesus is our foundation. Man, I love the New Testament church. Not because I love the New Testament church, which I do. But that's not why I love it. I love it because of Jesus. Jesus is the one I love and adore. It, almost every time when I go to just be with the Lord, I, I, what I mean is in my devotions. <laughs> Not to go to be with the Lord. <laughs> every time I go to pass away. No. Every time I go to be in his presence, I see him as this, this great majesty at God's right hand who got to that place of dominion by giving himself up. It's like the contours of his majesty. The streaks of the colors of this great king all weave back into a life that went to the lowest depths. There's this beautiful continuity between the life he lived as a servant and the glory of his majesty. They're one and the same. And to see all that, even physically in his resurrection body, he still has scars. It's like his risen glory still bears the marks of one who loved and gave himself up and suffered great pain because he loved so much. And he still has it. You know, one of the songs that we used to listen to in the 80s says, he's the one known by the scars. The Lord of all, the greatest one, is known by these marks on his body from pain and suffering because of sacrificial covenantal love. So even though he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. If he didn't use his position to push over on other people and to, to insist on being treated a certain way, then neither should we. That's, that's what Paul's saying. That's the implication. But instead, in contrast to insisting that he be treated as one who is God, he emptied himself. So again, that's the pattern. It's a self-emptying. That's the Jesus. You get the idea. But the, this, this terminology and order is, is very important, I believe, and it's, it's beautiful. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. So there's the reflection of John 13. He got up and took the form of a servant, right? 
and being made in the likeness of men. Well, that's an interesting order. Because I would naturally think of it that he became human and then put himself in the position of a servant. But Paul lists it that he had a certain mindset and then he emptied himself. How did he empty himself? By taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. As if becoming flesh happened after he took the form of a bondservant. But then he's found in appearance as a man and as a man he humbled himself. So there was... He kept humbling himself as a man. My point is, I believe that this posture Jesus took started when he was before the Father in heaven, in the household of God, surrounded by these hosts of angelic beings, who the writer of Hebrews tells us they're ministering spirits. They're sent out to render servants, uh, to render service to those who are to inherit salvation, right? You see the terminology? They're, they're, they're servants who are to render service to those who are going to inherit salvation. So if I inherit salvation, what, what, what does that make me? Well, I'm a son. Because I'm an heir. I'm not, like Jesus says in John 8, the servant does not remain in the house forever. But a son does remain forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you're free indeed. So you're not only you're you're not only liberated from your servanthood, you're brought into the family as a child. So you have rights and privileges. You're an heir. So these angels are meant to serve the, the, the children of God, the household of faith. Just like in an ancient household, you had the family, you have the children, and you, you have the servants, and they were also, you know, employees in the family's business, but they served the interests of the family. They weren't in the family. So Jesus is before the Father as the Son of God. He's the one Son, the heir of all things. He's the Prince. He's the Son. He's an heir of everything God has made. And these angels, as glorious as they are, these hosts, they're there to serve the Son and the Father. But when the Father sought to redeem the human race, an angel was not capable of doing that. Because an angel is not a human. An angel can appear as a human, but an angel can't be a human. So it's ineffective for an angel to die. We, we had to have, and I don't even know if that's possible, so forget I said that, but you know what I'm saying. He couldn't send an angel to redeem humankind. He had to send the one, according to Hebrews 1, who's greater than the angels. He's the eternal son of God. He was never made, as the creed says, begotten, not made. He existed forever. He is God, but he's God the son. And before the Father, when the Father wanted to expand his household, he needed a Redeemer, and there's only one who's qualified. So Jesus said, well, if that, if that requires me to lower myself beneath my dignity, in an instant, I'm yours. I'm at your disposal, Father. I will do that. So it was even before he became human that he took the mentality, I'm here to serve. Even though this is not what you'd expect from a son, if you were looking on from the outside, you wouldn't expect this, but I'm willing, even in the eyes of the angels, to go lower than them. And again, it says in Hebrews, he became for a little while lower than the angels. Because he was taking the position in the household that a servant would. The angels are the ones who should be washing the feet. And the son is the one whose feet they should be washing, but he's going to go lower than all of them. Ephesians 4, he came to the lowest parts of the earth. No servant, no angel, 
no person, no nothing has ever gone as low as Jesus to lift people higher. No one. There is no humility. There is no place of, of, of uh, dishonor, of, of shame, of servitude, of selflessness. No one's ever gone as low as the one who deserved the highest, Jesus. So he was emptying himself before he even became a human. That's the mentality of the one who is and was and always shall be so grand and awesome in his majesty. My encouragement is, if we don't really know this Jesus in his majesty, and now you know what I mean by that, we won't have the energy. And I don't mean to say it negatively as if I have a fear, but it's just a way of putting it, right? We won't have the emotional energy to enter in further during a season of recalibration uh, into what's required to be the New Testament church. I'm done. No. I am almost done. Oh, I got two minutes. Your clock's a little fast. Just wanted to... Recalibration. Recalibration. Okay. Oh, it is set for 11.58. Good job. Oh, it's 11.58. No, no, you're cool. Uh, yeah, the reason why we can default into something conventional, I don't mean we, kings, people, anyone, is it's, it's not because of just some technicalities, it's because we lose our vision of Jesus. Jesus is our Lord, Jesus is our center, and Jesus is our foundation. And when we're connected to him, we got to get into the things he's into. And that's what fills us with the spirit that creates such a family on mission. And so then in verse 8, he is, he is in the likeness of people and being found in appearance as a people. So the testimony was consistent. This wasn't just the story. He was seen and witnessed. This son of God, incognito as a human, and he looked just like any other Jew. You know, there was no, there was no physical majesty that we should be drawn to him, it says in Isaiah 53. It doesn't mean he was an ugly guy. It does say that earlier that he was marred more than any other person in his crucifixion. But that he he lacked stately form doesn't mean he was an ugly dude. It means he didn't look like a king on a throne. He was he was the man, the young man from Nazareth. He was another you know, another Jew from Nazareth. So when he went to Nazareth, they're like, Isn't this Yeshua? We grew up with him? Who does he think he is? They weren't saying, man, he's kind of ugly. Isn't it awesome that he's also the Lord? They were saying, who does he think he is teaching this way? And having all this power pour off of him and, 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 and correcting us the way he is in light of these Elijah, Elisha stories and taking this posture as if he's God's man of the hour. He's just another Nazarene. He didn't look different. He was found in appearance as a human. And... Um, as such, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you know, of course, what that means, the kind of death that was, was not only a physical torture, but it was a social death. This, this was reserved for the worst kind, and it was not a religious symbol. It was the lowest place one could go. But for this reason, in verse 9, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, 
of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there is no power in the universe that Jesus does not have dominion over. He has gone to the deepest depths of death itself. He has conquered death. He conquered sin. I mean, he conquered invisible beings that were contrary to God. He, he, he conquered a realm that was the place of captives that have gone when they have died. He's just, he's presiding over this whole realm. He has the keys of death and of Hades. He, he's exalted to God's right hand, which means these powers in the air that ruled over the earth. He's taken dominion over them. He's taken dominion over nature. He's the one who's walked on the water. He heals the sick. He has all dominion. He has the dominion of God himself and rules with God and for God the Father. And he has achieved that place by coming to the lowest regions of self-humility. Therefore, God is the one that raised him up. It's really, in the end, simply put, we want to be like this Jesus. We want a vision of his majesty that can see clearly the way he became such a Lord and such a Christ. Because we're made great too. We're sons and daughters of God. We are, God bless you, we're brought to greatness. But the thing we're supposed to do with that greatness is to deny ourselves and serve others and just let that be our job. Our job's not to raise ourselves up. God will do that. And he does it every time. If we believe in the gospel, then when we lower ourselves, we never have to raise ourselves up. We only have to lower ourselves, and God will exalt us. He'll give us honor. We could always seek the honor of others. We could always seek the good of others. We could always seek the quiet, secret place on behalf of others. And then when it's God sees fit to raise us up, whatever that means, it may be a season of blessing, maybe a season of, for some it's even notoriety, it may be a position, it could even be a, an occupational position, it could be ministry, it could be, uh, like I said, a season of provisional blessing. There's all kinds of ways God raises us up and makes space for us or blesses us outwardly. But that's for God to do. Our job is to go low and he raises us up. And that's the key to New Testament church. Jesus. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Jesus. It's the Jesus way. Amen. So that's all I have. I would encourage us. You know, I just want to exhort you in a very simple way. Let's make friends with Jesus on a deeper level, personally and together. Let's just become his friend. Let's see him as Lord, as present companion, and as foundational servant to us. And just, just let's become better friends with Jesus and let his ways rub off on us. It's exactly why Paul prayed in Ephesians 1 that we would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So we would translate him into life rather than just as a devotional subject. Yeah. And with that, I'm going to try to keep feeding, now and again at least, materials, links, resources, an outline here. Still working on my little booklet for house churches. I did work on it that week. I just didn't get it done. I'll send that out in PDF form when I'm done with it. Yes, please.
Isaiah 57, 15. It says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So it's like he begins with this declaration of this high and lofty, eternity holy. I dwell in the high place, the holy place, with him who is of a contrite and humble spirit. So it's like that's the that is the high place. Mm -hmm. Is you know when we humble ourselves, God exalts us, and even He says that is the that is the high place. Yeah, that's our, awesome. Our humble and contriteness. So I just thought that was really cool. I read that this morning. So oh wow. Stood out to me. And maybe it was last night. It was very recently. I used to think of it like you get in an elevator to go down to the the basement to go do your work. And in God's elevator, when you go down to the basement, but you come out onto the basement floor, you're at like the the rooftop. You could oversee the whole city. Because you know, when, when you go down, for him, that's going up. That's the way up. Let's make friends with Jesus. And let's really ask him just to rub off on us in the nature of his majesty. And I believe... The sky is the limit. So let me close in prayer and, and we are done. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we happily uh, confess to you that these things are beyond us, um, but you have brought them within our reach and even put them inside of us by your Spirit. So we pray for an outpouring of grace. We pray for that very same Spirit that we already have, the Spirit of God. But we pray that He would be activated in our hearts as the Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of You, King Jesus, so that we could really be in awe of You and all of the contours of Your majesty, but that we would work that out on the ground the way that you did as a servant of servants. And we pray that that spirit and that love would only grow in our midst, that it would be rooted in your love for us, but would be translated into our love for one another, and especially for you, just as you've taught us. So bless your people. We pray for all kinds of provision that is needed, for health, for strength of heart and mind, for finances. We pray for your blessing on the families that are part of these groups and also for the saints in Charlotte. We pray for revival of your church and for a mighty harvest because Jesus is king and he deserves it. And in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Hey guys, it is an awesome privilege to have you at our place. Thanks for coming. <laughs>